Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice podcast, and I'm your host, Shane Phillips. Each episode, we discuss a different housing research paper, in this case, a book, to better understand how we can make our cities more affordable and equitable places to live. Our guest this week is Dr. Casey Dawkins of the University of Maryland, and my co-host is Mike Lenz. Similar to our recent episode with Michael Hankinson, our conversation with Casey focuses more on political science and political philosophy than we usually do, but I think you'll find that the theory relates to very tangible concerns here. His book, Just Housing, is all about the moral and political foundations of the housing justice movement, and it traces the history and motivations of land and housing reformers back to the founding of America and even beyond. It grapples with questions at the heart of housing justice, questions like, is housing a human right? If it is, what does that say about our government's obligations and what we owe to each other? And how do we balance the right to private property, which among other things is founded on the right to exclude with a universal right to adequate housing and secure tenure? Casey has answers. We are always thinking about how research translates into practice, so we also spend a fair amount of time on his proposal for a negative income tax and a housing allowance to every low-income household. We get into what that really means and why it might be a better approach than, or at least a good complement to, some of the more common strategies like investment in public housing or housing vouchers. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, and we receive production support from Claudia Bustamante, Olivia Arena, and Hannah Barlow. As always, you can help the show by giving us a five-star rating and a review. And if you have any feedback or show ideas, you can email me at shanephillips at ucla.edu. Let's get to our conversation with Dr. Dawkins. Today's episode will be a little different from our typical format, where we interview an author about a recent journal article, and instead, we're going to be discussing a book by today's guest, Casey Dawkins. So a book, not an article. Dr. Dawkins is a professor of urban studies and planning and a research associate with the National Center for Smart Growth, both at the University of Maryland. His book is titled Just Housing, The Moral Foundations of American Housing Policy. Casey Dawkins, welcome to the UCLA Housing Voice Podcast. Hi, Shane. Thanks for having me on. And Mike Lenz, welcome back as co-host. Good to be here, Shane. Uh, Welcome to Casey as well. Since we last recorded this podcast, I've been to Italy, I've been to France, and (laughs) I've gotten through my my dose of omicron so it's it's been it's been a little bit of dream life a little bit of crazy life um but that's that's how we do it i haven't left my living room in two years i feel like so yeah you're kind of rubbing it in mike yeah (laughs) sorry well i mean you know it's not all fun and games i've had like five weeks of house guests i mean you know yeah how's the book going that's that's the nominal reason you're you're away right you know it's it's been really fantastic at different points, um, but the last few <laughs> weeks, as as I've been gallivanting through uh, France and, and England with my friends, it's 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 taken a bit of a hiatus. Understandable. So, Casey, we always like to kick off the podcast with our guest telling us something special about either the city where they live or where they're from, or just a, a favorite place um, that they know well. Where do you want to tell us about, and what is something special about it? So I've lived in the Washington, D.C. area for about 15 years now. This is where I got my accent. (laughs) (laughs) I actually grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, but I've lived here, I think, longer than I've lived anywhere else. So Mm -hmm. um, it is sort of interesting. I I live in the, you know, I tell other people I live in the D.C. area, but I've actually, you know, I first moved to Alexandria, Virginia. Then I moved to H Street Northeast in D.C., now I live in Tacoma Park, Maryland, so I've sort of traversed the three states or the the two states in the district that you know that make up the region. But at the, it's a great place to live. I mean, anyone who lives here or has spent time here would probably agree with most of what I would say. And you know, it's people come here for the free museums, the you know the monuments, the public spaces, but it's also you know a great place with rich history, diverse neighborhoods, and. You know, I'm close to the coast, close to the mountains, and the entire north northeastern corridor. So it's uh, mm. it's been a, a great place to live, and it's you know being the 
the center of federal policy making sort of obviously has its has its benefits if you like you know talking politics you know most, yeah for sure most places will host their uh debate you know we have debate watching parties in our bars instead of you know football watching parties <laughs> we have we have federal government shut down specials <laughs> all right well mike uh so it was your recommendation that we do this book um, and kind of depart from our usual approach here. And I actually did end up reading the whole book. So kudos to me. I, I, I knocked it out over the past couple Definitely. weeks. But um, do you want to give an introduction of the book? Yes, of course. Um, and, and yeah, kudos to you, Shane. Um, you know, I, I don't say this with any negativity whatsoever, but it's not the easiest um, <laughs> uh, book to, to read. It's it's it's. Uh, a lot of pleasure, but a little bit of work too. Um, but onto the summary, uh, you know, in this book, uh, which is just housing, I'm, I'm sure we've mentioned that already, but the, the title of the book is Just Housing. And in it, Professor Dawkins interrogates, you know, a common declaration by housing advocates that housing is a human right. And so I, I think of that, and it's implicit in the book that at least one jumping off point or one motivation for this book is, is this interrogation of the idea that housing is a human right. It's an ubiquitous phrase declared by, by many actors in, in housing justice movements that seek to fulfill that promise in, in US housing policy that housing should be treated as, as a human right. And this motivates Casey to trace whether um, American political philosophy, various social and housing movements, you know, legislation that that really establishes housing action by governments and jurisprudence, whether all of these things kind of actually support the treatment of housing as a human right. And in my reading of this, this argument, you know, for advocates to be successful in using a slogan or a statement like housing is a human right, they must convince the electorate that housing is special, that there is something specific that a rights-based conception of housing should provide everyone and that there is some kind of public entity that is responsible for providing a specified housing uh, allotment for everybody. I find his discussion of, of historical movements um, through U.S. history very interesting and, and particularly important. And this also, of course, supports, you know, how this rights-based conception of housing, I think, has, has evolved over time. The, the kind of end of the book, the latter part of the book specifies uh, Dawkins' preferred policies to further housing justice. And he begins with a, a critique of a fully public model of housing provision, which is not preferred uh, by, by Casey. And he'll talk more about why. But part of it is because there's also a pretty strong defense in this book of private property rights. And so provocative argument here is that property rights both create and solve the problem of, of housing insecurity, which I, I think is really interesting and we should talk more about. His preferred way to rebalance the scales between property rights and housing rights in this country, in the United States anyway, is the negative housing tax. And this tax would be on both housing consumption and increment, incremental growth in housing wealth. And the proceeds from this tax would go to a monthly housing allowance for those with the most extreme housing needs, and there would also be a block grant to assess spatial inequalities um, in housing costs. So we're going to talk a lot about the policy implications of, 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 this, of this book. So I'll leave it that, at that introduction. But before we go on, Casey, is there anything you'd like to clarify in, in my summary or, or add? No, I mean, there's really nothing I would add to clarify. I think that's a great summary. Um, and uh, I appreciate you sort of hitting all of the the highlights, um, and as you sort of pointed out, I went to a lot of places in this book. <laughs> you know, I went sort of the, yeah. in the history of housing policy, the philosophy of justice, which was sort of really fun to return to. This is sort of even going back to my undergraduate days, but I sort of really dove deeply into that literature because I thought a lot of the yeah. arguments that are going on in political philosophy right now are really some of the same arguments that are that are happening in in housing. And I guess the only thing I might add is is not necessarily anything you miss, but maybe say a bit about my motivation for writing the the book in the first place. And I started thinking about this back in oh gosh, it was during the Obama administration when fair housing was sort of the topic du jour and the affirmatively furthering fair housing rule was being substantially revised and 
Um, you know, there's a big debate among fair housing advocates or housing advocates more broadly about sort of what does fair housing mean? You know, does fairness mean limiting discriminatory treatment in housing or does it mean something mm -hmm. bigger? You know, the integration of neighborhoods by race and income. And so as I've sort of started thinking about that question that sort of brought me into other similar debates in housing policy that were really defined by a similar disagreement over basic you know, fundamental goals, the justifications for those goals, and the role that housing plays in sort of tying it all together. And, you know, the learning more about, you know, your side of the country, you're well familiar with the Yimby fimby you know, debate that's right. going on. And, you know, with the, the question of should we loosen the reins on housing supply to make housing more affordable, or should we protect tenants' rights or greatly expand the provision of public housing? I mean, that's a similar kind of debate. Um, and so yeah. just sort of looking more at those kinds of debates, which seem to be sort of pervasive in housing, um, I wanted to sort of, you know, get to the core of that. And this is, this always is a, a you know, usually a, a lecture in my housing course, you know, what are we trying to do in housing? And usually the, the, the upshot of that lecture is, well, we're trying to do a lot of things. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, perhaps, perhaps too many. To the, yeah. And I'm, I wanted to <laughs> get to the meat of that, but really, you know, and, you know, the most interesting thing to me is we're untangling those things that conflict. You know, we have goals that, that are in conflict with one another. So how do you sort of think through those things? And what's the special significance of housing and why do we care about it? And why do we need a policy realm devoted to it? So that's sort of, right, you know, where right. I began. Yes. I think, of course, the, the interesting questions are like where those tensions or those uh what you're trying to do kind of collides with one another. So let's start kind of with, you know, where you land, I guess, on, on, on housing as some kind of a right, you know? So, you know, we talked about one of the motivations being whether or not housing is a human right. And ultimately you, you conclude that housing is a social right. So how are those two concepts different or those two types of rights different? And why does the, the distinction matter? Sure. Uh, so, so to me, the primary difference is in how each right is grounded. Um, and I spent a lot of time talking about this in Chapter 6, and I talk about the differences in sort of the grounds for human rights versus what I call, well, I didn't invent the term, but I'd refer to them as, as social rights, as many others have. Um, and, and really, the basic difference is that human rights are appealing to the idea of human dignity, to argue that rights are necessary mm -hmm. to protect human beings' distinctive moral status, you know, what is distinctive that mm -hmm. gives us sort of normative, uh, you know, the the status of needing rights to be protected, and what, what is distinctive about human beings' dignity that that sort of grounds that, that kind of right. And that's a universal sort of ideal that applies globally. Social rights, on the other hand, protect our right to be full members of a given society and participate as equal citizens on equal terms in that society. And so basically what what I want to argue is that the, the ground of human rights is weak without some prior appeal to what human dignity means within the context of a given society. You know, so for example, a uh, conception of housing justice grounded in some universal ideal of human dignity would fail to account for housing's distinctive role in distributing access to public education in, in nations such as the U.S., which largely finance public education from state and local taxes. Housing markets themselves are highly localized, and the conditions that make housing unaffordable in San Francisco are very different from the conditions that make housing unaffordable in in you know London where you're at or or Hong Kong. So, you know, given the localized nature of housing markets and the variability in the national institutions that determine how housing gets distributed, any universal conception of the human right to housing is likely to yield a a, a thin, watered down conception of minimal housing entitlements that would ignore the distinctive contribution of housing to each nation's shared culture. Um, essentially, mm -hmm. I feel that human rights don't go far enough to to address the unique challenges in the housing realm that we face here in the U.S. Right. So I think we, you've gotten this, to some of this, but why do you think it's necessary or is, is, is housing special uh, or is housing policy special 
to the point where we need to ground housing policy in a rights-based framework? Or do we kind of do this with, with everything else? Or should we? No, that's a good question. This is something that really, the going back to political philosophy really shaped my thinking on this. You know, I mean, you know, traditional policy analysis, you know, sort of approach is to define your goals and define the best means to achieving those goals. And one of the things that that is talked about a lot in the in the in the political philosophy literature is sort of the differences in uh, sort of policy approaches that are grounded in collective goals versus those that are right-based. Um, and so that was re- sort of really interesting to me and I thought was really c- kind of crucial to this this argument. And really the most important thing about any right is that it gives the right holder a, a kind of veto power. So it, it's, yeah. it's a right to demand justification when someone tries to affect your fundamental interest, even even when the majority approves of the action that's you know infringing on your interest. So rights essentially protect the right holder from the whims of politics in a, in a sense. And, and so that's a very strong ground for a, a moral framework. Um, and, and it's sort of interesting if you go back to history, yeah, so the the history of housing policy that I lay out is actually, I think, even more expansive than you'll find in a lot of big books. Because I go all the way back to the the founding era, even before that. Oh, without a doubt, yeah. And uh, so one of the things that I found really interesting is that if you sort of start from the founding era and go forward, there was a strong emphasis on rights based uh, reforms in the. You know, in the founding period and, and on through the 19th century. I mean, Thomas Paine thought that everyone had a natural right to hold property. Um, and he proposed uh, a tax on land inheritance to create something he called the National Fund that would provide sort of social insurance plus a, a stakeholder grant to everyone that would be distributed equally and unconditionally to everyone when they reached adulthood. Mm-hmm. And that sort of idea, um, and, and you know, Jefferson had sort of similar but less radical versions of that idea, uh, had a big influence on the land reform movement and the, and the homestead movement. But sort of an interesting thing happened in the, the late 19th century, you know, when the progressive movement sort of uh, emerged. Progressives, you know, were sort of looking for new solutions to a variety of social ills, but the, at the same time, they were very critical of the idea of natural rights, and they really abandoned right-based approaches altogether. You know, so they they sort of looked for different moral frameworks to ground their uh, their policy suggestions, and so you know saw, saw a lot of policies being uh, framed in utilitarian kind of arguments. You know, this is very common in the tenement housing reform. Uh, movement or or appeals to the common good were also sort of uh, common, but there's sort of an abandonment of the the idea of the the right based approach. And you know, even more concerning, some of these progressive reformers also define the common good in a very narrow way that that was exclusionary, that excluded people of color or those who didn't own single family detached homes. So you saw it sort of move away from from that approach. Now it sort of reemerged from time to time. And during the New Deal era, Catherine Bauer, who's the sort yeah. of major figure in the the history of US public housing reform, said a decent dwelling is not a reward withheld for the successful, but a fundamental right to which every citizen is entitled. Uh, the provision of which becomes a responsibility of government. And so um, and Franklin D. Roosevelt proposed something called the the Second Bill of Rights that would guarantee rights to, among other things, a, a decent home, but it was never put into, into law. But So my book is essentially making the case for something like the Second Bill of Rights, <laughs> but, but for housing. Right. So... <clears throat> You know, we'll, we can talk a, a little bit about a couple politicsy questions, maybe before we get specifically to policy. So, you know, do you think that housing advocates should kind of rethink the housing as a human rights strategy? Because you know, you just talked about how rights have been used as justifications over time in different ways. You know, do you feel like there there's something either strategically or on the merits of the question that this you know rather commonly used catchphrase like housing is a human right gets gets wrong or is maybe strategically misplaced 
one of the primary reasons I wanted to tackle this this topic is that I felt that a lot of the discussion around the right to housing was 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 unclear. Um, they're, you know, often calling for the protection of the right to housing, but without really defining what what do you mean by the right to housing? So, what does that give the right holder? What does that obligate the government to do in in return? Um, and there was really a lack of clarity around what a right to housing even meant. I mean, it's a strong rhetorical device, but but what does it mean if we're going to use that as a basis for policy? And so that's what I really wanted to get at. And then sort of going back to my comments about human rights versus versus social rights, um, I think we can do better than just protecting the human right to minimal housing provision. You know, we can deliver right. a right that secures a the most important ingredient of a dignified American life, a, a home. And but we need to, I think, be explicit about what that means in terms of policy. So I wanted to just really sort of make that as concrete as possible, but connect it to a a, a grounded argument. Another thing I should probably make make clear, I'm not really making a political argument. You know, I'm not sort of mm-hmm. offering a, a roadmap for for advocacy. <laughs> um, I'm making an argument from the standpoint of what justice requires and argue that justice in the housing arena requires that we that more of us take on the responsibility of meeting the needs of those who are poorly housed um, and essentially arguing that the property rights and housing that most of us take for granted are only justifiable if we make this egalitarian commitment. And so that's sort of the the touchstone for the for the argument I'm trying to make. And but I do think that the you know the issue of uh, clarity and grounding is 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 a good thing for the movement itself and sort of tying it to policy and and moving forward. I, I do feel like that even if your book is not about the politics, obviously it's always it's always present. And you know something that I think your book brings out when it talks about housing as a human right versus a social right is just this idea that housing is a human right, you know, especially when it's not very well defined. It's very easy to interpret it as sort of a, a very minimal thing, as a thing that you know leads us to focus solely on the poorest and most vulnerable and most disenfranchised. And I think there's absolutely reason and and there's kind of a need to swing the pendulum back in a way where we are prioritizing those things. But at the same time, you know, a frustration I've seen is just this, it almost is like that's the sole focus and there's not really a, a bigger picture vision for what does housing look like for all of us and what does that mean for the people who you know, maybe aren't going to be eligible for for subsidies or or you know direct assistance. Yeah, and you know, coalitions matter, um, and in politics right, do matter. Right. I mean, I guess one 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 way to maybe think about this, this kind of argument is to say that you know any of us can be in a position at some point in our life of being between stable housing units. Uh, You know, I mean, those who argue for something like the basic income, for example, kind of make a similar argument, you know, is that Mm -hmm. there should be a minimum floor that no one should be allowed to fall below, Um, a a minimum level of assistance that society should provide to its members. And then, so I'm essentially arguing similarly that housing should be an important, you know, sort of piece of that. Maybe we'll get, we should get into, you know, what kind of specific benefits you think should flow from, from this social right. And, and, and I guess that's, I think that follows having advocates lay out exactly what this right means and what it, you know, can, should confer um, for people. Yeah. And I think, I think a right to housing does two very important things. First, taking language from from the human rights movement, actually, uh, a right to housing elevates housing provision to a special place of importance in the sort of the national policy debate. Cass Sunstein, who's a a lawyer who's written thousands of books, it seems, uh, yeah. argues that rights establish a nation's constitutive commitment to protecting certain fundamental interests. Um, now, this doesn't mean that the right to housing can never be violated, but it does mean that when making political trade-offs, policies that infringe on someone's right to be housed will be placed under a special kind of scrutiny. And so policies, you know, in Canada's national housing strategy is sort of 
framed in that way, for example. But secondly, I think a right-based approach structures the incentives of economic actors prior to exchange. So it's distinct from a traditional tax and spend redistributive approach that reallocates resources after the fact. Mm-hmm. Right-based approaches rely on what's sometimes been called pre-distribution to assign rights, alter incentives without necessarily having to correct inequalities uh, after the fact. So an example of this is a, a just cause eviction law, for example, expands tenants' rights to remain in their homes while simultaneously sort of restricting landlords' rights to arbitrarily uh, evict them. And so I, I don't sort of argue that pre-distribution is 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 the entire solution, but I think it's an important piece of a, a sort of a right-based strategy. Something you said there that I think is is worth getting into a little further, and, and it does appear in your book, I think, a little bit as well. You said essentially that, you know, a right to housing or any kind of right does not imply that that right can never be violated or transgressed against. And I think some people would dispute that. Um, But can you explain a little bit further what you mean by that and kind of what the implications of that are? Yeah, I mean, I really sort of like the the political structuring argument, you know, the best. Canada is committed to protecting the right to housing, for example. Um, Actually, France is a very good example of of a nation that that tries to do this. They have a a policy... uh, I'll just go by the acronym of DALO, um, and I, I I don't have my English to French guy to help me <laughs> go through the acronym of what that actually stands for. But it's it's based on a, a right to housing. But it, essentially, what it does is it gives every person a uh, a sort of a claim on public resources that that should be provided to them if their housing situation uh, renders them homeless. You know, if, if you uh, have, if you become homeless, there's a sort of local government agency that you can register your claim for the right to housing uh, and and then ask that, that social housing be provided to meet that need. Uh, if no housing is available, then there's sort of a, an additional administrative step that provides you with different options and, you know, it's administratively complex and probably not the most efficient process, but it shows how sort of restructuring housing provision around the basic idea of a right can sort of reorient the structure of, of, you know, the housing delivery system to ensure that, you know, at a minimum, no one goes without any housing and we sort of are uh, distributing resources to deal with the sort of the most pressing housing problems. Mm. Um, you know, Canada, their version of that is to say, okay, we uh, acknowledge the right to housing in that in sort of the public allocation of resources, make a certain commitment to, uh, you know, sort of a certain dollar commitment to uh, providing resources for homelessness uh, alleviation and 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 other you know sorts of policies. So I I think it sort of changes the terms of the conversation. Um, you know when we talk about in you know, now national housing policy is not being talked about as much as most of us probably wish it would be. But structuring around a right to housing sort of is, establishes a minimum floor of responsibility that is sort of hard to hard to change based on the the priorities that are established. I was actually listening to another podcast just a couple of weeks ago, I think, and this discussion of, no of, of, of rights <laughs> came up. And uh, it it was, I think the, the argument was essentially that in the US, we, we have few rights, but they are very strongly upheld um, and defended when they are determined to be rights. And in many other countries, it's sort of the opposite approach where they have many rights, but they're sort of more weakly held and they're, they're like, serious goals oh. and they work toward them yeah but they don't expect that they're going to they're not going to overturn everything to ensure that every single person has it and i feel like that's an interesting dichotomy and i don't know which is better but in some ways no. <laughs> maybe i do but, but I, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it sort of in the i guess it was in the 80s there the big complaint was rights inflation <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> the idea that we're sort of asking for too many new rights and we need to sort of protect protect the ones we have. Yeah, and I mean it sounds it sounds dismissive and silly, but 
it it does take a lot to to defend these rights and it does create a lot of obligations so there's always the question of like well you've 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 established that this is a right but can can you actually do what's necessary to to make that a reality yeah i think the idea is too that as you as you point out if 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 it is indeed a right and that's sort of a strong legal claim then we don't want to sort of diminish the importance of what a right is by calling something a right if it's not you know, mm-hmm. so if mm-hmm. housing is indeed a right, then let's take that seriously. This brings up the case of, of New York where they have a, a, a right to shelter. So they don't have a right to housing, but their state con- constitution, and this was sort of determined by a series of, of lawsuits, there is a, a right to shelter so that every unsheltered homeless person has to be offered shelter of some kind or a hotel voucher or what have you. And it's it's interesting. So for one, shelter is not housing by most definitions, just to be clear. But they have a very limited unsheltered homeless population in New York, whereas here in California, it's extremely high. It's, it's the vast majority of unhoused people. And so it sounds very good. But in New York, you know, sort of a flip side to that is that they spend so many resources on shelter and it leaves fewer available for kind of longer term housing solutions. And so you know, there's the real trade-off here. I'm curious to hear, you know, if it, I know you included that in your book as well. It's interesting. As I was writing this book, I started to realize pretty soon that the, I could have made the entire book about New York. But this, you know, this, this, this idea of the right to shelter that emerged in, in New York after a court uh, battle uh, was really sort of imported in establishing the national homelessness movement. And I think it's, you know, you rightly say that it doesn't go far enough, um, but it goes quite a bit farther than most cities. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the the real problem, and it, D.C. actually has something has something similar, and there are a couple of other examples of this in other, other localities. I think the real problem, though, is that here in the U.S., um, I mean, even the most forward-thinking laws are sort of constrained by the U.S. Constitution, which doesn't guarantee a right to housing, so it's not going to sort of protect that as a uh, as an obligation. And and when it conflicts with the you know right to own private property, it's going to side on the side of of property owners. And mm-hmm. the Supreme Court has actually said that there is no right to housing recognized by the Constitution. So, you know, the, taking the right to housing seriously. Um, I think really means fundamentally rethinking some of our basic institutions. So you talked earlier about it being, of course, interesting when, you know, rights conflict. And, you know, I think we talked also about when we have too many rights or many rights. I don't know if there's ever too many or whatever, but Mm -hmm. if there's many rights, like there's a higher chance that some of these rights are going to conflict. And so, that of course brings me to property rights versus housing rights, and 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 also with talking about jurisprudence around this, you know, I'm certainly not a legal scholar, but I would I would strongly suggest that you know any reading of of legal jurisprudence in the U.S. is going to heavily favor the idea of protecting property rights over protecting housing rights, as you just basically like, you know, stated. So, and, and bearing the lead here, you pretty vigorously defend property rights in this book. Um, and so, yeah, I think we should talk about how those two rights conflict or they don't and, you know, how you kind of, you know, as a scholar, like defend both of these, th- these rights. Yeah, I'm glad that that you bring this up. I think this is one of the most distinctive pieces of of the argument. And I should say that I'm offering a a qualified defense of private property. (laughs) Uh, It's not a full-throated defense as a libertarian might uh, offer. But basically, I'm arguing that the only way to justify an institution like private property that protects certain interests by excluding others is to justify that institution to those who were excluded. (laughs) And the only way to do that is to provide a reasonable opportunity for everyone to acquire some property. Um, Mm -hmm. So viewed in this way, property rights are justified to the extent that everyone's right to housing is secured. Um, And I call a property rights regime that's sort of structured in this way a, a secure tenure property regime. And, and as I mm. sort of thought about it, actually after writing the book, I, it's it's very similar to 
uh, what John Rawls describes as a property-owning democracy. And, um, you know, so um, that was an unintentional similarity, but it, yeah, I think is consistent with what, what he, is, he has talked about in, in his work. Yeah, one one of the thing about the sort of that because I think this is really important and sort of in terms of what a right to housing is, uh, particularly within this kind of property regime. Um, I see the right to housing as a kind of property right. So if you sort of decompose the bundle of property rights that homeowners have, you have the so the right to use and occupy property, the right to exclude others, and the the right to exchange property for money. Um, the right to housing, as I understand it, includes the first of these two, but not the third. Instead, under a secure tenure property regime, the right to earn income from property is attenuated um, and possibly limited to extend the right to housing to those who don't enjoy it. So, mm. so for example, um, I'm not really arguing for or against rent control, but it's a good example of a policy that would attenuate landlords' rights to earn income while expanding existing renters' rights not to be forced in their homes. Now, we can sort of argue about whether that in practice is uh, what actually happens, but that is sort of an example of, of how something like that might work. Right. I want to hold on this, you know, tenure security and tenure insecurity for a moment. I think that's it's something you introduce and I, I feel like is a pretty core issue in your book and just to be addressed by housing justice overall. And by tenure insecurity, you're really referring to a lack of control over one's living arrangements up to and including just lacking access to housing altogether. And tied to that is a sort of neutrality between different forms of tenure, primarily renting versus owning. So how does that neutrality between owning and renting relate to tenure security? And how do we sort of bring that neutrality to fruition? Because as you know, as we all know, right now, U.S. housing policy is tilted very heavily toward homeowners and property owners. Yeah, I mean, this is a sort of really important piece of the argument. And the idea of tenure neutrality goes back to what I see as sort of a core value uh, in the conception of justice which is something I refer to as civic equality. Mm -hmm. And it sort of stems from something I refer to as moral equality. And I think Ronald Dworkin has a good quote that sort of captures this idea. He says that the state should treat those whom it governs with concern, that is, as human beings who are capable of suffering and frustration, and with respect, that is, as human beings who are capable of forming and acting on intelligent conceptions of how their lives should be lived. So sort of as Dworkin lays it out, um, the idea of state neutrality is, is sort of central to that. And this sort of goes back to Rawls. The idea that the state shouldn't justify its actions to, by appealing to a sort of a controversial conception of the good life that not everyone would be in agreement with. But the history of U.S. housing reform, uh, reformers have sort of taken the opposite approach. They've appealed to the idea that homeowners are better citizens or that the good life consists mm -hmm. in you know owning a suburban home. And I'd sort of argue that housing policy should be should be grounded in those kinds of those kinds of arguments uh, that are subject to reasonable disagreement, but instead housing policies should, should sort of guarantee tenure security across a range of housing types, sort of without favoring any particular uh, tenure arrangement. But you can also sort of think of tenure neutrality as, a, as an egalitarian principle. You know, it's sort of designed to eliminate tenure-based differences in secure housing arrangements by sort of elevating renters' uh, housing security to a level closer to what to what homeowners enjoy. In what ways, I've been thinking about this a lot and how, you know, I think that security is a really important thing to, to, to emphasize here. But obviously, homeowners and renters are different and they have sort of different interests to some degree. So sort of how far does that extend? Um, trying to think of a good example here, like, you know, I, you talked about sort of attenuating the right to earn an income on your property. And I think that's, that's pretty straightforward, but, you know, say an owner, you know, I think this one's a little easier, but like an owner wants to move a family member into a unit that they own and, and evict someone who lives there. 
And maybe a more difficult one would be they want to, you know, tear down a single family home or a duplex that someone is renting in and build, you know, higher density homes. Like, how far does that right to secure tenor extend? Yeah, I mean, you could think of a lot of sort of examples. And I think, you know, ultimately, you know, sort of thinking back to the, the primary objective of, you know, ensuring that those with the least secure housing arrangements are sort of prioritized in the in the provision of housing policy is, is sort of maybe a sort of a, a way of thinking through those things. Um, but, it, you know, it's it's interesting, tenure security or tenure neutrality, um, you know, I sort of frame it in, in this, you know, I'm sure we'll get into the the negative tax idea, but and that's where it sort of shows up the most. But you can also think of this in terms of a sort of a principle for zoning reform. You know, mm. I mean, our zoning ordinances are often sort of uplifting single-family housing as a sort of an ideal housing type, and mm-hmm. and that needs to be protected against the intrusion of other types of housing. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. and re- yeah. sort of relegating other housing types as inferior. Um, and you can sort of think of a lot of examples of that. And so, as a principle for zoning reform, I think this sort of idea is is a pretty powerful uh, guide. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's get into the policy part of this, I guess, I think. So, you know, maybe we should start with some, you know, ideas and some well-used policies in housing that that are already present, you know, in, in, in such as like public housing, right? We just talked about your defense of private property rights, which I think is part of your critique of public housing, at least, you know, how it's practiced and and why, you know, not to spoil the the fun for, for everybody, but why your preferred policy solution isn't just like a radical increase in the size of the public housing program in the U.S. Um, so can you talk through your critique of public housing? Sure thing. You know, and I should say that the so the critique of public housing is is not central in the book. It sort of I think takes no, a paragraph or no. two, um, but I, I think it is a sort of an important argument because I don't land on the side of a a large scale social housing program. So maybe sort of clarifying why that might be the case, I think is useful. Yes, and it it sort of goes back to the sort of there's a there's a chapter there in the book where I talk about sort of the injustices of homelessness or the injustices of tenure insecurity. And and one of those injustices is that the homeless have no access to private spaces where they can freely engage in activities without having to first obtain the approval of someone else. You know, they have no places in which to be free because their any action requires the approval of a private property owner. Mm-hmm. Um, and and civic republicans would call this kind of injustice domination. And uh, Jeremy Waldron is actually, he's a legal philosopher, has written a really powerful argument around this uh, in, in, uh, in political philosophy as it, as it applies to, to homelessness. But, so, but you sort of extend that argument. If the government provided all housing, citizens would still experience the domination of government agents rather than the domination of multiple owners of private property. What's what's really needed is for the homeless uh, person to have control over their own private space, free from any form of domination, which is sort of why private property becomes an important piece of the uh, piece of the equation. And you can also sort of you know there's sort of the standard other kinds of critiques of public housing is, you know, it's markets are generally better at delivering the diversity of housing options that that consumers prefer. But I don't think that's sort of central to my, to my argument necessarily. But, but I don't want to make too much of that objection because I do think that some expansion of public housing beyond what we currently have in the U.S. is probably a, a good thing. Um, mm. And I wanted to sort of give an example to show how I, sometimes I feel like our dichotomies are too sharp around yeah. this this topic in the US. Um, so, so take Singapore, for example. As a market-based system, the government plays a significant role in the acquisition of land, the construction of housing, and the 
subsidies for home purchase. But at the same time, those homes are then sold to homeowners who largely retain their ownership rights. And I say largely because they have certain obligations about uh, home appreciation. Um, but all I'm saying is that the, the emphasis of policy reform in the U.S. with its large private sector role in housing provision has to be on making markets work for those who have less. Um, and I think that's sort of the, the the main priority that we should be should be focusing on. And and so like the other big policy in housing that that helps people afford housing when they can't is the housing voucher program. I'm kind of skipping past the low income housing tax program, but I'm maybe kind of lumping that in with public housing in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a housing voucher program that is you know in many ways larger than than our public housing stock or program. You and I are are friendly with a whole bunch of people that study the housing voucher program and and what it can and and should do. I'm even one of those people. You've been one of those people in some ways. So why don't we, why not just, you know, making the voucher program bigger and better? Uh, So that's basically what the negative housing tax is designed to do. Um, And so it's essentially expanding the voucher program into an entitlement so that it wouldn't be sort of rationed to about 25% of households that qualify for it, as, as is currently the case with the voucher program. Um, and it would also expand to include renters and owners uh, who own right. incomes below a certain threshold. And so he, here again, sort of the idea of tenure neutrality, we're providing housing assistance that should be tenure neutral. So, um, and I can say more about the the negative housing tax idea. Yeah, let's, let's get into it then. Yeah. So... Maybe start by talking why this is better supported by this rights framework as you understand it, and then you know we can get into the mechanics of it as well. Sure thing. So I mean, first, just sort of a real simple characterization of what it is. Um, and the basic idea is to reform the income tax so that we tax homeowners' untaxed income in the form of imputed rental income and capital gains on home sales that are not currently taxed, and also getting rid of the mortgage interest deduction, the property tax deduction. And that'll raise substantial revenue that that I can get into the dollar amounts later if you want. But essentially, the money that would be raised for that would be more than enough to provide a guaranteed housing allowance to all very low-income households. And that would be sort of an entitlement. That would be sort of the funding source for that entitlement. Um, anything in excess of that, the amount that would go to the the housing allowance, uh, would go to a block grant program that would be targeted to high-cost housing markets. And that block grant would be used to essentially as a supply-side uh, housing supply enhancement for, for places that have sort of a shortage of affordable housing supply. So, you know, that's sort of the basic idea. Kind of tackling things from from both the, the supply and the demand side. Yeah, that's really what I thought was important because, I, yeah. you know, one yeah. of the worries with a sort of a large scale expansion of a demand side subsidy is that you're just sort of replacing the problem. You're, you're leading to inflated rents. Um, you know, if people mm-hmm. have more money income to spend on housing, rents are going to go up. So it's a way to sort of dampen that inflationary pressure, but also to target existing supply shortage, you know, housing supply shortages in in markets, you know, such as the ones that you're probably very familiar with. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to sort of balance, you know, supply side and, and demand side strategy. But it, another thing that I was sort of trying to do here is I wanted to sort of shift the burden of satisfying low-income housing needs to those who benefit from existing property arrangements. In other words, those who own current residential property and who benefit from property-based institutions have the obligation of extending rights to those who have less. Um, mm-hmm. And this sort of one of the sort of important features of the the negative housing tax is that allocation of benefits and burdens in a proportional way that targets those uh, housing inequalities that come out of uh, of the current you know tax structure. Yeah. So that I mean, I guess to reiterate, you know, for me, I think it's very intriguing and important that we're not just taxing the, you're not just taxing housing transactions, but you're taxing gains in housing wealth, right? Which 
a lot of times those gains in housing wealth are, you know, you're not some kind of genius because you bought, you know, it's an accident of history, right? You bought something at a particular point in time and maybe even like, you know, there were public investments that occurred or, you know, just happenstance and luck that occurred that, you know, mm-hmm. led led to your housing investment really paying off over the long term, right? I think I think in California, the figure is something like almost like a, a third of all housing appreciation, appreciation in the value of homes is in California. And, you know, it's not because Californians are like smarter investors overall or something. It's just because they happen to live in California and we're not building enough housing and people want to live here. And like no individual person, no business, no landlord is responsible for that. It's a it's a collective. It's something we all contribute to. Right. Yeah. And then there's, yeah, you you hit the nail, one nail on on the head there, (laughs) Shane, of course, which is like there's you know, this, this protection of property wealth leads to some, some bad actors or some bad acting, right? Where you want to exclude others or, ex, you know, exclude some kind of, exclude additional housing or development or whatever to protect your, your property investment. Um, the flip side, or, you know, an interesting outcome in, in that is that increases in kind of the, the value of your home or, or, or kind of the, locational greatness of your area is going to increase your tax burden, right? And so so one interesting piece of this is that homeowners kind of might incur the costs of gentrification, you know, or neighborhood improvement or locational improvement or whatever, just as renters currently do. Um, That's obviously a hot button topic. And that sounds great to me, even though I'm I'm a homeowner in a place that will probably keep accelerating in value. Until you inevitably get to the point where like everybody's like, I don't want anything to get better around me because, you know, I as a homeowner, I'm going to get taxed more. The renters are going to get increasing rent pressures, et cetera. So like, is that a piece that you worry about there? And then, you know, homeowners dominate electoral politics. So like that changes a lot of kind of uh, incentives and and acting there in, in some interesting ways. There's the backlash aspect of it of even if you could yeah, make yeah, this happen, yeah. like as soon yeah. as prices start going up, do we get another, you know, like Prop 13 where people were getting, you know, their homes were worth way more money and they were way richer. But like that was less important to them in the moment than the fact that their tax payments every you know six months or every year were higher. Now, I'm, I'm glad you raised this. It's a great question. Um, that's something I actually don't talk enough about in the book. But, you know, another way of saying the same thing is that the, the negative housing tax would sort of transform the housing piece of the income tax into a benefit tax. You know, mm. so households pay yeah. for what they're willing to get and benefits similar to a, a user fee. You know, yeah. so economists would probably like this because it closely approximates the pricing mechanism in the private market. So you sort of get what you pay for. You know, so that's maybe another way of, of, of looking at it. Yeah. And there's just a lot of, you know, for lack of a better word, overconsumption of housing that is in, in large part because we are not neutral with respect to tenure. And we do a lot of things to encourage people yeah. to put, frankly, more money than they should or even necessarily want to into their housing rather than other things because you get all these tax subsidies, imputed rent is is exempted from taxation. When you sell it, you get the first $250,000 or $500,000 of, of gains tax-free. Um, all of that encourages people to spend more and having this consumption tax sort of offsets that at least a little bit. Well, honestly, it also creates a huge incentive for NIMBYism. You know, I mean, if your your house is your primary source of wealth, you know, mm-hmm. you're going to engage in collective action to protect that. So this, I mean, you know, this is sort of a testable proposition, but one might think that nimbyism would be less of an attractive option if you're yeah. um, sort of losing all of your wealth gains in a form of a tax. Right, right. So... You know, race, of course, complicates any you know discussion of housing in the U.S. But it also just there's there's quite a lot of uh, discussion and, and movement over many years on race and rights in the U.S. and rate and race and justice. Of course, you discuss racial discrimination quite a lot at various points in the book when tracing housing movements and also in in discussing your in discussing the policy side of things. 
but the you know the negative housing tax inevitably is race neutral you know i guess so there's two questions here which first is like does your concept of the social right to housing supports a policy that can be you know used to affirmatively further racial equity or you know is there kind of can you be racially explicit in this kind of right and then if so you know how can like this negative income income tax further racial equity i guess and you know something i sort of grapple with from the, from the beginning is it pointed out sort of started thinking about this book by thinking about uh, about ha- fair housing right and I think a couple of things i would say and you know one is that this is this is sort of the next book <laughs> um there's there's a sort of a chapter discussion of this but i think this is really a sort of separate topic all of its own but one thing i should point out there you know i think that there is room for quite a bit that that can be done within the framework that I set out. So one of the important dimensions of sort of civic equality is something I refer to as relational equality. And this is sort of a an ideal ch- achieved when when everyone all citizens view one another as equal participants in right, the right. social order and equally respect one another's civic freedom. Um and it's a sort of an expression of a an anti-subordination uh, idea uh, that looks at the shared effects of an action to on persistent group disparities. Um, you know, so under that guise, I think there's a strong case to be made for addressing things such as spatial inequalities that lead to opportunity hoarding, for example. A large part of that, uh, of which is caused by you know, nimbyism and the, the desire to sort of protect your home as an investment, you know. So so although that is a sort of race-neutral policy, I think it would have significant implications for sort of the, the spatial distribution of, of wealth, um, you know, across regions. A couple other things I would say are that the policies themselves are race-neutral, but the benefits, I think, would flow disproportionately to low-income people of color, uh, mm-hmm. who are hit the hardest by homelessness and housing insecurity. I'm actually doing some some work for HUD. I'm actually this year spending the uh, year at HUD on the sabbatical. Um, and I'm doing, I'm actually looking at the impacts of some of these policies and sort of how they would play out across different household groups and spatially. And I'm, what I'm finding is that a tenure neutral tax reform paired with this housing allowance would yield proportionately larger benefits for people of color. And specifically, it would reduce after-tax income inequality for black households more dramatically than it would for white households. So, Mm. you know, I I think there are, in sort of exploring ways in which those benefits flow more so to um, certain groups than others, is I think something that I want to really dive into more deeply in sort of the next phase of this uh, of this work. And, you know, getting back to fair housing again, I mean, do you see a, a way that this could further racial or income integration as well? I mean, is, is that an outcome that, that you think is possible in this framework? I mean, it's, it's a great question. And <laughs> I'm actually critical of of the idea in in the book. I'm sort of critical of the idea of using spatially targeted targeted vouchers to encourage low income folks to move to high income neighborhoods to promote you know integration and sort of arguing that that's a form of paternalism. You know, it's objectionable yeah. really for the same reason that it's objectionable to justify housing policy by appealing to the superiority of a suburban lifestyle. Um, yeah. you know, so yeah. I, I don't really side on the, on, on the side of sort of aggressively promoting residential integration. Um, and this is actually something I've sort of come around to a different view on. I was, you know, sort of early in my career, a sort of a stronger proponent of sort of aggressive pro-integration policies. And I think I've sort of learned more about the objections to some of those, uh, you know, folks like Ed Getz have done really great work on this. And, you know, yeah. he sort of, his entire book sort of devoted to this topic. And I've really sort of learned a lot from from him and it's from those conversations. And I think it's, um, I'm you know, find those arguments really compelling. 
Yeah, I would agree. And yeah, I, I found that piece of your book, it, it was a little surprising to me to encounter, but it was, it was also very honest. You know, it's like in our our kind of wing of housing scholarship, I, I certainly wouldn't say that's like taboo to say like, oh, we shouldn't encourage pro-integrative moves, but it's not usually the favored kind of um, solution or, or it, it smacks some people of kind of complacency about segregation. But, you know, it's hard to disagree with the paternalism inherent in it. And it's hard to disagree with, you know, some of, you know, you mentioned Ed Getz's work, which we should, we should link to that, that really, I think, um, does a great job of framing kind of the, the dark side of, of that, of adhering too strongly, I think, to that, to that philosophy and that mechanism. Yeah. So for the last question here, I think I want to come back to the politics and a couple episodes back, we had Michael Hankinson on to talk about his research and his finding that a shift from at-large elections to district elections increased minority representation. This is in California, but it decreased housing supply in the places where this shift took place. And we ended up talking about how the benefits to representation were clear and important and, and obviously good, but that when it came to housing that representation mostly just created another veto point, which you, you kind of talked about briefly already, really just another venue to say no, but not really any good mechanisms for saying, you know, yes, let's do this, but let's do it differently than we have in the past. And in your book, you write, quote, American progressive reformers set out to redefine property, private property, and reform property-based institutions to promote the common good. In practice, most reformers pursued a conservative regulatory approach to reform, using the state's police powers to transfer particular sticks in the property rights bundle to government bodies, thereby collectivizing the right to exclude." Unquote. And that line, collectivizing the right to exclude, really has stuck with me since I read it, and it echoes our conversation with Michael Hankinson. It also comes up later in your book when you talk about the tensions between the individual right to housing and a collective right to housing. So I'd really like to hear you, just your reflections on how we've maybe steered things in the wrong direction in terms of the institutions we've set up to deal with housing and housing justice, even when we've had the best intentions in mind. And again, that, that tension between individual rights to housing and collective rights to housing and, and what that means. Now, that's a, it's a great question. Uh, this, this idea of collectivizing the right to exclude was really referring to what happened when residential zoning ordinances sort of made their first appearance within American cities around the turn of the, the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, so you think about what zoning does, it effectively took certain rights from the individual property bundle. So the, the right to use property in particular ways, for example, it transferred that to collective decision-making bodies. So in, in doing that, it gave communities the, the false impression that they gained a collective property right and property use. Um, you know, sort of going back to the idea of a right, communities rather than individual property owners gained a veto right over the, the use of property, and they wielded that veto to exclude anyone who chose to use property in ways that was not approved of by the community. Um, and so that transfer has been sort of the enabling mechanism for a lot of the nimbyism that, that that's that's occurring. Yeah, you know, and essentially, I'm sort of arguing that that collectivizing the right to exclude sort of got things all wrong. It sort of trivialized the importance of private property to the pursuit of individual life plans while simultaneously giving collective bodies the sort of the power to deny access to, to, to that right. And so, but, but one thing I want to make clear here is that I'm not making a sort of traditional libertarian argument. Um, although if you want to call it left libertarian, that's probably, you know, pretty <laughs> accurate. Um, I, I don't think we should return to sort of the 19th century laissez-faire constitutional era. What we need to do instead is to sort of acknowledge everyone's right to that most basic stick in the property bundle, the right to use property to sort of realize your conception of the good, while possibly attenuating the right to earn income to ensure that everyone has access to, to housing. 
you know, in terms of your your comment on Michael Hankinson's really uh, interesting research, um, I think federalism in the U.S. has been sort of both a blessing and a curse for housing policy. Mm-hmm. You know, on the one hand, decentralized authority has given small communities and minority groups greater representation, and it continues to do so. Um, and it's also given communities a say, even if, you know, it's only the power to say no on the issues that affect them the most. But yeah. You know, at the same time, we haven't paired decentralized authority with a strong national commitment to ensuring that those decentralized decisions do not deprive some of access to the most, you know, basic ingredients of the good life or mm-hmm. you know, a place to call home. So uh, that's sort of what I'm hoping a right-based strategy does: is sort of reorient national priorities around that goal and by doing so, restructuring sort of the outcomes associated with local decisions. All right. Well, I think that is a great place to end. Casey Dawkins, your book is Just Housing, The Moral Foundations of American Housing Policy. It is highly recommended by both Mike and I. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you both. Enjoyed it. Fantastic. Thanks. You can read more about Dr. Dawkins' research and find our show notes and a transcript of the interview at our website, lewis.ucla.edu. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips. Mike is there at MC underscore Lens. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.